Armageddon. You've likely heard that name before. <clears throat> First time I heard it, Bruce Willis was trying to take down an asteroid the size of Texas. The world was going to end in 18 days. If you remember the film from 1998. President Joe Biden used Armageddon recently as well. A couple weeks ago, commenting on the war in Ukraine, the president warned that we have not faced the prospect of Armageddon since Kennedy and the Cuban Missile Crisis. People will often use Armageddon to describe what they see as the end of the world. But what's usually missing from these uses in pop culture is any fear of God's imposing judgment. In Revelation 16, we encounter the origins of this name, but when we look at things more closely, Armageddon has less to do with the end of the world and more to do with the end of evildoers in the world. So how should we respond? Let's hear what the Holy Spirit is saying to the churches, starting in verse 12. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are demonic spirits, performing signs, who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And God remembered Babylon the great, Make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found. And great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people. And they cursed God for the plague of the hell, because the plague was so severe. <clears throat> In John's vision, we've reached bowl 6 and 7. These bowls started back in chapter 16, verse 1. They are judgments from the presence of God. And to pour out a bowl means that God was going to enact a judgment on earth. Uh, he would cause severe consequences to unfold in history. God enacts these judgments against his enemies, and he also does it to deliver his people. Under Satan's influence, uh, we saw in chapter 13 that the beast has led an assault against God's people, and the beast seeks to destroy the church, but God will come to deliver his people by way of a new and greater exodus, an exodus that includes plagues, judgments against our enemies. In bowl one, God humiliates the beast's followers directly with painful sores. 
In Bulls 2, 3, and 4, God turns creation itself against the beast followers. He, he undermines their economy and leaves them desperately thirsty in a scorching wilderness. And then in Bull 5, God attacks the beast's throne and plunges his kingdom into a despairing darkness. These first five bowls represent the final undoing of the beast's kingdom. That's also true of Bull 6 and 7. This, this story will, will continue. In verse 12, an angel pours out his bowl on the great river Euphrates. Its water was dried up, John says, but for a specific purpose. Notice, it is to prepare the way for the kings from the east. Now, in the Old Testament, the the Euphrates River, it formed the the northeastern boundary uh, of Israel, and foreign armies would would often attack Israel from the northeast, from the Euphrates. So, for many, uh, this scene here is one where kings from the east will join kings from the whole world, in verse 14, to battle against God. And that may be one piece to the picture. But remember, all the other bowls are direct judgments on the beast's kingdom. In verse 2, the Lord judges those who worship the beast. In verse 6, God judges those who murdered the saints. In verse 10, God judges the beast's throne. In verse 19, God judges Babylon, who we learn is in cahoots with the beasts. We should read bowl 6 in the same light. Drying up the Euphrates isn't to strengthen the beast's armies, but to initiate the final undoing of the beast. Also, this isn't the first time we've seen the Euphrates. It appeared back uh, at the sixth trumpet, chapter 9, verse 14. God had released there these four angels who were bound at the river Euphrates. And we saw there that the result is this, this host of, of demonic armies that were, that were coming to punish idolaters. That's, that's, that matches the way God dealt with Israel in the Old Testament for their idolatry, right? He sent Assyria Assyria from the northeast to judge them. Then he sent Babylon, another wave, Babylon, to uh, to judge his people for their idolatry. The same happens here, only it's the beast's followers who are worshiping idols. We've been told this multiple times in Revelation. The kings from the east are part of God's plan to judge idolaters. And that shouldn't surprise us. The same pattern appears in the prophets. God promised to destroy Babylon itself for their idolatry. And the way that he planned to do this was by raising up nations from the northeast. He would end Babylon's greatness by the sword of Cyrus and the Persians. You get prophecies like this in Isaiah 44, verse 27 and 28, and Jeremiah 51, verse 13. And what's also interesting is that both prophecies point to God's ability to dry up the waters. 
Okay, in other words, nothing, not even the great river Euphrates that Babylon depended on for its security and, and, and stuff, uh, not even that would stand in God's way of judging Babylon for its idolatry. Now, let's combine those observations with the first thought that these kings come to join others in battle against the Lord. Now, on the ground, it looks like one group, the kings from the east, right, joins a larger group of pagan kings to battle the Lord. But from heaven's perspective, God is preparing the way for Babylon's downfall. It's not until chapter 17, verses 16 and 17, that we get further details. But essentially, the Lord causes the beast and a cohort of nations to turn on Babylon. Babylon has been depending on the beast, but the beast and a cohort of nations turn on Babylon, and they devour her, and they burn her up with fire. It's yet another example in Scripture where God turns evil against itself. He uses one rebellious nation to punish another until Christ returns and replaces all of their kingdoms with his own. But what about the other parts of the sixth bowl? In verse 13, John sees this grotesque vision of three unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet. These are symbols, of course, much like the sword from Jesus' mouth, right? We see that in Revelation. Jesus has a sword coming out. It doesn't mean his tongue is stabbing people, right? It's a metaphor to talk about God. He's speaking a word of judgment, against his enemies. Well, the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet also have things coming out of their mouth. They have words. They have a message too, and it is repulsive reptilian words. Right? They speak unclean words. Leviticus 11.10 talks about frogs being unclean creatures. They, they speak demonic words. That's what the frogs represent in verse 14. Demonic spirits performing signs. And they go abroad to the kings of the whole world, which matches the plague of the frogs against Egypt, doesn't it? What happened in Exodus chapter 8 with the frogs? The frogs are everywhere. They're in people's homes They're in the bedrooms, they're in the ovens, they're in the kneading bowls. So also here, these these evil spirits are are everywhere. And, And we saw from chapter 13 how Satan and the beast, they work in military and they work in 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 the political uh arena and they work in the economy and they work in various uh religions and and all of this they're doing to assemble kings for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. They're at work in everything to lead people to oppose God. That's the picture. Now, this is no surprise to the Lord. He's in charge of these bowls. It's part of his judgments that the nations gather this way. 
You can find prophecies about this, this great day of God the Almighty. It's often called the day of the Lord. Uh, in Scripture, God would summon the nations for war, and you can find that in places like Isaiah 34, Ezekiel 38 and 39, Joel chapter 3, Zechariah 12 and 14. It, it's no surprise. God has planned it. This is a judgment upon his enemies. He, he will basically let evil run its course because of their hardened hearts. He will turn kings over to evil spirits who dupe them into thinking they can overthrow God. And that brings us to Armageddon in verse 16. John says that these demonic spirits assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. Now, Revelation has used Hebrew names before. They usually serve as, as theological symbols. Uh, for example, the false teachers uh, back in chapter 2 are called Balaam and Jezebel. They stand Balaam, the figures of Balaam and Jezebel, right? They symbolize what these teachers are, are also doing. The old, the old Jerusalem uh, in chapter 11, where Jesus was crucified, is called Sodom and Egypt. Babylon stands for the rebellious city of man in Revelation. And so it shouldn't surprise us if, if Armageddon is also a symbol. The name itself has two parts, harder to see in English, but it's Har Magedon. Now, if we take John's word seriously here about the Hebrew, Har in Hebrew refers to a mountain. Magedon is the trickier half. The oldest view is that Magedon builds off a Hebrew word that means to cut down. Uh, in, in other words, uh, they've assembled at the Mount of Slaughter, the Mount of, of being cut down. Evil kingdoms gather to oppose God, but they will be cut down. That's one possibility. But I think it's better to take Magedon as an offshoot of Megiddo. Uh, it's very close to the, to the spelling that you get in Zechariah 12, 11. So Magedon is an offshoot of Megiddo, which is a place where some historic battles happened in Israel. Megiddo is where God helped Israel defeat the Canaanite kings. And what's unique is the way Deborah describes this Victory in Judges chapter 5, verses 19 to 21. God calls, she, she says, God caused the stars to fight and a torrent in the Kishon Valley to sweep away these rebellious kings. That's much like we see God turning creation itself against the beast kingdoms in the bowl judgments. Megiddo is, is also uh, the area that overlooks Mount Carmel where Elijah defeats the prophets of Baal and humiliates the rebellious king Ahab. 
Megiddo comes up again in 2 Kings 9.27. King Ahaziah partners with Ahab and Jezebel, both known for their idolatry, and the Lord brings about his death in Megiddo. King Josiah also dies in the plains of Megiddo, but he dies after the text tells us in 2 Chronicles 35, 22, that he ignored the words that came from the mouth of God. So what do these defeats, these historic defeats in Megiddo have in common? They're all pictures of God defeating kings who reject his word. Now, if that's the referent in mind, then Har Megadon or Armageddon in English symbolizes the place where duped kings gather to their own destruction. The point isn't that you get out your map and locate Armageddon today. Revelation takes up these Old Testament themes and he uses them to paint the world in these stark contrasts, right? We get, we've gotten two cities so far, Babylon and Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem. He has taken up these Old Testament themes and he's painted the world in terms of two women. They are the harlot or they are the woman of chapter 12, the bride of the lamb, later in chapter 19. And now he's taking up these Old Testament themes and he's using them to paint the world in terms of two mountains, Har-Magadon, Armageddon, the mount where duped kings gather to die. And that is the opposite of Mount Zion, where the true king, Jesus, the lamb, obeyed his father unto death and now reigns with a kingdom of priests. And so the point is, which mountain do you belong to? For all those who choose to ignore God's word, their folly will gather them for defeat. Wherever they gather against God, their opposition will prove to be in vain. That's what Armageddon is about. It signifies the final downfall of all rulers, all leaders, all peoples who reject God's word. What I find ironic about President Biden's words is that Armageddon isn't, com- isn't coming only for leaders who have their fingers on the nuclear codes. It's coming for everyone who refuses to bow their knee to King Jesus. Armageddon forces all of us to ask, am I right with Jesus? Am I being duped by the beast? Am I on the right mountain following the right king? When you hear the bulls warning about Armageddon, don't look first at the Middle East. Don't look first at Russia or Asia. Look first at yourself. Babylon's idolatry is here. So make sure that you're not among the nations being duped. 
I'll return to verse 15 in a minute. Let's look now at bowl number seven. This last angel, he pours out his bowl into the air. The air could mean the earth's atmosphere. It could also mean the political domain of Satan. Paul calls Satan the prince of the power of the air in Ephesians 2.2. Either way, the Lord is, is judging the domain of evil here. A loud voice then comes from the throne. Perhaps this is God's voice saying, it is done. Now, we know there are still four chapters before the New Jerusalem, so it's not like it's done done, right? We, most likely, this is going back to what he said in chapter 15, verse 1, which explains how these seven plagues finish the wrath of God. His purpose in wrath has brought us to the end here. Notice how verse 18 mentions flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake. Now, we've seen this language before, haven't we? We saw it in chapter 8 at the seventh seal. And then we saw it again at the end of chapter 11 at the seventh trumpet. Right? It's the language of theophany in the Old Testament. God appearing, God displaying His glory in, 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 with these visible signs. And the idea here is that when God appears, His majesty it shakes the created order. Here He, he shakes the earth like, like never before. The prophet Haggai had anticipated a day like this. In Haggai 2, he talks about how the Lord would shake the nations and overthrow kings and kingdoms and then exalt his city and his temple and his king above all the others. Ezekiel 38, 19 also anticipates this great earthquake, one violent enough, it says, to shake all people on the face of the earth. And the goal in Ezekiel 38 and 39 there is, is to punish all of the evil kingdoms of the world but raise up the greater Jerusalem. The seventh bowl fulfills these prophecies. Brings us right up to the point where God is appearing to shake the earth so that his kingdom alone will prevail, and then all others will crumble before him. That's, that's what happens in verse 19. Babylon crumbles. John says the great city was split into three parts. The cities of the nations fell, and God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. No, notice the cities, plural, of the nations, plural, fell Again, John isn't reducing Babylon to this, this one geographical location. Babylon symbolizes the entire world system opposed to Christ. It's the city of man. And, and wherever it exists, God will make it crumble when he appears in Christ. Verse 20 says that every island fled away and no mountains were to be found. Mountains often stood for kingdoms, places of refuge. Islands housed the distant peoples and, and they could be a place to run and hide. The point here, though, is that God's judgment will touch all places and all peoples and every kingdom. Even the strongest fortresses and the most distant hiding places will be no more. No one will be able to hide. 
God will level every kingdom until his mountain rises above all. Verse 21 adds that God himself will fight. Great hailstones, it says, about 100 pounds each fell from heaven. Was it fell from heaven on people? This recalls the, the plague in Exodus 9. It also recalls Joshua chapter 10, verse 11, where God fights the Amorites on behalf of Israel with a barrage of, of hailstones. Joshua 10, 11 says, There were more who died from the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. What's the point? God fought and won the battle. And so it will be at the end. God will fight and win the battle. And his judgments will be right. Notice those who hate God will continue to hate him. Just like Pharaoh did when the, when the plague of hail, hail fell on uh, Egypt, Pharaoh hardened his heart. And that's what you see these beast, the beast followers doing here. They harden their hearts. Instead of repenting, they curse God, verse 21 says. The hardness of heart proves that God's judgments are deserved. Now, that's bulls six and seven. Now, what do we do with them? One thing to do is resist the urge to speculate about which contemporary nations belong to the kings from the east, for example. As one writer put it, conjectures about Armageddon and its relation to specific modern nations and locations that will be its fulfillment have invariably been an embarrassment to prophetic interpretation. Far too quickly, people read their contemporary crisis into the text. And it's embarrassing when Christians hear of something in the Middle East or in Russia and start claiming the fulfillment of a particular passage in Revelation, only to have time go by with no fulfillment. That doesn't serve the trustworthiness of our testimony. Revelation doesn't give us the particulars. That's not the kind of book it is. It is a book where a lion is also a lamb. And you make your clothes white by washing them in blood. It's a book where God's people are lampstands that talk. It's a book where we live in a wilderness filled with fire-breathing beasts. It's a book where cities like Sodom and Egypt and Babylon are all talking about the same thing. The symbolic use of Old Testament imagery should make us proceed with great caution before connecting Armageddon to some war in the Middle East or nuclear weapons in Russia or military developments in China. Here's where we don't have to speculate. All who refuse to bow their knee to the Lamb will fall with the beast's kingdom. All who oppose God belong to a kingdom that will eventually self-destruct. 
All who buy into the beast lies, set their hopes in Babylon, will face the wrath of God. That's the message of Armageddon. Sure, study prophecy. Stay watchful. Right? Discern the times. But make sure that you're right with Jesus. Jesus died to save you from Armageddon and to gather you to himself on Mount Zion. He drank the cup of God's wrath to give you the cup of his blessing. We should read these judgments against Babylon much like we read the, uh, the oracles against the nations, right? In, in the prophets. You read the oracles against the nations and they're awful and horrific and it dawns on you all of a sudden, I belong to the nations. I deserve God's judgment like this. Why, though, are we saved? Grace. Grace. Jesus came and died on the cross to absorb that wrath, those curses that we deserve, that we might be brought in to God's people. Jesus drank the cup of wrath to give you his cup of blessing. So make sure you're with Jesus. Make sure you're on the right mountain. Make sure you're not being duped by the beast. Which leads me to another takeaway. The main one, actually. Can I just say something else? This is... I find it interesting... uh, very concerning, maybe would be the better word, that a lot of American Christians are good about discerning the beast in every other culture but their own. All right, now we're going to this next point. Stay awake and stay clothed. It's part of staying awake. That's another way of saying stay vigilant and faithful. In verse 15, Jesus says, Behold, I'm coming like a thief. He's not commending thievery, obviously. He's just saying nobody knows when he's coming. Behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed, he goes on, is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. Now, staying awake has to do with readiness, right, to meet the king. Jesus used this same word and the same same, uh, uh, analogy with a thief. Back in uh, Matthew chapter 24, verse 42, Jesus says, Stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master 
has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time. Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. So staying away, according to Jesus, has to do with being being a faithful and wise servant. Staying awake has to do with being about your master's business while he's away. Staying awake has to do with staying alert to the things of God, knowing what his will is, and then, and then following through and doing it. We prepare for all sorts of things. To prepare for unexpected expenses, right? We go and we save up our emergency fund. To prepare for bad weather, we cancel plans and we hunker down. And if you're like my wife, you bring all the plants inside. To prepare for medical costs, we have health insurance. To prepare for a test, we study. To prepare for burglars, you might invest in home security. We prepare for all sorts of things. And they occupy our mind and our thoughts and our, and our, and our wallet and everything, right? And our time. But nothing comes close to the importance of preparing to meet King Jesus. So are you ready? We've seen a couple of examples in churches that weren't ready, right? Back in chapter uh, 3 of Revelation, remember Sardis? Chapter 3, verse 2. Jesus had to tell them, wake up. They had the reputation of being alive, but they had grown dead to the things of God. Have you fallen asleep? Does your soul feel dead when you come to the Word of God? But then it's all of a sudden energized when you get a paycheck or over the latest movie or gadget or some game. Wake up. Don't stay asleep. Don't drift to destruction with these other kingdoms. Then there was Laodicea as well. Right? They had grown complacent. They were unmoved by Jesus. They had had lost all dependence on Jesus because I need nothing, they said. They were rich with the world's goods and they thought they were clothed. But Jesus comes to me and says, no, you're not clothed. You're pitiable, poor, blind, and you're naked. They had so neglected their relationship with Jesus their shameful deeds had left them exposed like someone naked. How about you? Have you neglected your relationship with Jesus such that your shameful deeds have left you exposed, naked, undone? Your shameful deeds have left you much like Adam and Eve when they disobeyed the Lord, running and hiding from His presence. I want you to hear the Spirit speaking to you this morning in this text. He holds out 
a blessing to you. And he says, blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And the point is get the right garments from Jesus. Get the white garments from Jesus. Chapter 3, verse 18. Jesus pleads with Laodicea to buy the garments from him. In Revelation, that means not only coming to Jesus for the purification of your sins, but it also means following Jesus in righteous deeds. Are you being a faithful and wise servant? Spiritually speaking, are you getting in the word and and feeding your spirit with the bread of life? Are you sharpening your mind with, with the Bible to discern good from evil? How is your prayer life? If anything, these bold judgments have reminded us that God identifies with his people when they pray. These bowls are coming as a result of their prayers earlier in the book. Morally speaking, are you conducting yourself in ways that that Jesus will approve on the last day? Ethically, how are you spending your days at work and your time? God has gifted each of you with various gifts and skills. How are you utilizing those gifts and skills to build up the church? Money-wise, what is your strategy as a family? To serve Christ's unshakable kingdom. You see, there is one kingdom that won't be shaken when Jesus comes. It's his kingdom. So invest there. right? Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. These are questions I've had to ask myself when reflecting on staying awake and staying clothed. I want you to listen from... 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 2 to 11. These are Paul's words. They're very similar to Jesus' words here. 1 Thessalonians 5, chapter, uh, verse 2. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing.
children of the light. Stay awake. Stay clothed. Stay vigilant and faithful to Jesus. And he promises that you will receive the blessings of his kingdom. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I ask that you would give us grace to endure these evil days. Give us grace to walk in holiness, to stay alert, stay awake. Help us pursue our Lord, following him in righteous deeds. By your spirit, gift your people to strengthen one another in the hope that is ours, found alone in Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen.